As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. The defendant murdered his wife with ethylene glycol. It's been 15 years since Mark Jensen was convicted of poisoning his wife with antifreeze, then finishing the job. He got on top of her. He pushed her face and her neck into a pillow. He sat on her back so she could not breathe. And then she died. Now Jensen is getting another chance to prove he's innocent. He didn't cause her death. Julie Jensen took her own life. This week on Open Record, the marathon retrial that's just underway and the key evidence jurors won't get to see as they decide if Julie Jensen's death by antifreeze was murder or suicide. From the Fox 6 studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson, and I'm joined this week by Fox 6's Bill Miston. Hi, Bill. Good morning. And also by Open Record's executive producer, Sarah Smith. Hi, Sarah. Hi, guys. We are recording this episode on Thursday, January 12th, 2023. It's been 25 years since a mother of two was found dead in her Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin home in 1998, and this week, the man accused of poisoning and suffocating her is on trial in Kenosha County. Bill, let's start with how we got here and why Mark Jensen is on trial for his wife's death, which happened a quarter century ago. This is pretty unusual. The long and short of it is that there was a piece of evidence that was used to convict Mark Jensen back in 2008. He was charged with his wife's death years after she died and convicted at trial by a jury uh, in 2008. And after years of appeals, both in the Wisconsin uh, circuit courts, appeals courts, uh, federal courts, and even petitioning uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, he was granted a new trial, and this piece of evidence that was used back in 2008 was thrown out. What was that piece of evidence? It was a letter that Julie Jensen wrote before she died. Uh, She had told people that she feared that Mark Jensen would maybe try to poison her. And this letter that was written uh, said that if anything happened to her, that police should look at her husband as the primary suspect if if something bad happened to her and something did. Jury selection uh, happened earlier this week. And, um, you know, there were dozens of potential jurors that came through. And what were some of the questions that were being asked of them you know, before they were decided whether they were going to be seated. The trial is going to last more than a month. And 200 jurors were brought in. And basically the biggest question, uh, question that the special prosecutor and the original prosecutor in the case, Portage County Assistant District Attorney Robert Jamboys said was, can you commit to being in a trial for more than a month? Uh, It's estimated to take five weeks, possibly more. And so that was the first hurdle. The second hurdle was you have to pull a jury from Kenosha County. And this was a very big case back in the 
late 1990s when Julie Jensen died and when her husband, Mark, was charged in 2002 and then throughout uh, the aughts and up until when uh, the trial took place in January of 2008 and he was later convicted. You know, the thing about this, if you set the scene for this case, I think about probably everyone listening to this podcast has either been through or knows someone who has been through a rocky relationship, um, maybe a marriage that's gone uh, that's gone run afoul. Um, this was sort of the ultimate uh, dysfunctional marriage in that you have, you know, Julie Jensen at one point has a brief affair and then apparently regrets it. Um, Mark Jensen holds that, according to the prosecution anyway, holds that against her for years, engages in a campaign of of just some crazy stuff, harassment involving pornography and all sorts of other things, um, phone calls and, 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 and whatnot. And then he ultimately has his own affair. It, what strikes me, though, is for all the dysfunctional relationships we've ever known of in our own lives or heard about friends or others or family members having, to have someone tell someone else, write a note and say, if anything happens to me, my husband is the suspect is pretty remarkable. And then to have that piece of evidence pulled out seems to me like it would really make the state's case more difficult. How much more difficult will it be this time for the state to have that kind of a powerful piece of evidence removed from its arsenal? Well, I think the best way to look at this and how I've been looking at what evidence is being presented to the jury is to think that that letter isn't there, that you don't know about it. We know about it, but the jury shouldn't know about it. And... There are cases that go forward, homicides, murder trials that go forward that don't include a piece of evidence like that. Um, what you're going to hear from medical examiners is that there was ethylene glycol, antifreeze, found in Julie Jensen's body. And that it was to the point that it was crystallizing. Your body metabolizes this alcohol and it forms crystals and it's an extremely painful and grueling death. And that she was to the point, you're going to hear prosecutors say, of stage three, which is basically you are going to die unless there's any help that's given. So looking at it from that standpoint of knowing that there isn't going to be this letter, you've covered trials, I've covered trials where it may not be this same mode of death, but that there are trials where people are are charged with evidence that don't include a letter from beyond the grave. So opening statements happened yesterday on Wednesday. Um, what did we hear from both sides? And, and then I guess looking forward, what's expected today? You know, the prosecution says that Mark Jensen poisoned his wife with antifreeze over a, a three-day period, that he drugged her with sleeping pills and then later suffocated her. And then her body was found. And that's when we knew that something was going on. But Jensen has maintained his innocence, and he said that Julie was depressed, she was mentally ill, and that she died by suicide. Um, and so that's the theories of the case, and both sides are going to be putting together more parts of, of their own theories to support those claims as to why it's homicide or suicide. Um, and what's interesting to note is... Um, you know, there's a number, this case happened so long ago 
And part of that means you need to have witnesses to testify to what they knew at the time. You know, you're more than two decades ago, she died. And the trial was back in 2008. People die. And there's key witnesses that were part of the first trial that are no longer with us. And so while that letter from beyond the grave isn't admissible, um, what is admissible and what is being done and we saw happen in towards the end of the first day of testimony is video from the first trial being played to the jury as evidence and you hear Robert Jamboys doing direct examination Robert Jamboys is the special prosecutor doing direct examination back in 2008 and you hear objections that are being made to this testimony of uh, Margaret Voigt, who was a neighbor of Julie Jensen. Uh, Margaret and her husband, Ted, uh, were, were close with the Jensens. And so there are some witnesses that are going to be having their testimony played from 2008 into the court record, and that's going to be used as evidence that the jury can determine whether or not uh, this was a homicide or suicide. You know, that's what gets me about this case, uh, Bill, is that it is such a long time ago. The trial was 15 years ago, the conviction, but the death was 25 years ago. Memories fade after a short time. They certainly can be much more difficult to conjure up a quarter of a century later, even for those who are still around. I was watching some of the uh, defense opening statements from 2008. And I thought it was interesting. The defense attorney then started his opening statements by saying, finally, 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 Mark Jensen has a chance to clear his name. And I'm thinking, but then he was convicted and has spent all this time in prison. And now finally, 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 he has a chance to try to convince a jury again that, that he didn't do this. So it's really remarkable in just the amount of time. And one thing that stood out to me in terms of that time span is a key piece of evidence or some of the evidence in this case has to do with Internet searches. Um, and we now think of Internet searches as so ubiquitous. I can pick up my phone while I'm talking to you guys and I can search some stuff and get some answers. I could find out how you poison someone with antifreeze on my phone right now as we speak. 25 years ago, that was not nearly as simple. And one of the things here, if I understand correctly, Bill, tell me if I'm wrong is that it's not that there? we know the searches were done. The question is, who did them? Did Mark Jensen search how I'm going to kill my wife, or was Julie Jensen searching for ways to commit suicide and frame her husband? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And what the prosecution says is that Julie wasn't on the up and up when it came to using computers. Computers back in 1998 often had a room dedicated to them. I know I had one when I think we actually got a computer, our first home computer in 1998. And that, so the prosecution says Julie didn't even know how to turn a computer on and that her son uh, David was the one that had to help her do things. But then the defense says Julie was the one that managed people's, the family's finances and used Quicken or QuickBooks, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a a ledger program on the computer to do so. So there's a conflicting uh, argument there of, of who is right and who knew how much Julie uh, could do on the computer. Um, so that's one of the things. And, and even during the, the, the jury selection, an interesting question for the younger people that were 
impaneled as part of this larger pool is, do you know what dial-up internet is? <laughs> do you know that you, if you were on the phone in the house, you had to hang up the phone in order to use the internet? Um, and so that got a lot of chuckles out of everyone involved uh, when there were a couple people who said, I have no idea. Basically, they said, I have no idea what you're talking about. So to that point of time and how much has, has passed and who is now uh, going to be deciding, ultimately 12 people are going to be deciding uh, Mark Jensen's fate. It's hilarious until you think about the gravity of what it means to this case. I mean, it's it, that's why I just think the passage of time in this is is so unusual and, and, and so wild. Um, so I know that Court TV is in the courtroom covering this case. Um, and this is now the, the third Wisconsin trial that's, you know, Court TV has been in town for um, following Kyle Rittenhouse and Daryl Brooks. Actually, it's 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 the fourth. Uh, oh. Theodore Edgecombe. Uh, oh, gosh. Which was the case yeah. out of Milwaukee County. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So as you're in the courtroom covering this trial, what's it like in there? As far as the first several days through jury selection and opening statements, uh, it's mostly been media. Uh, we are sitting on one side of the gallery in the first floor courtroom of Judge Anthony Milosowskis. Um There are uh, some people that I recognize that are with the district attorney's office or, or others that are maybe popping in to watch the trial. But the, the courtroom isn't as full as maybe we saw and people would be familiar with with the Kyle Rittenhouse or the Daryl Brooks trials. Uh, but, you know, there is definitely interest in this case. I think about the Brooks case and when it started and the judge said she had set aside the entire month of October and we thought, man, that's going to take forever. But I guess we get it. The parade had so many victims and so many pieces of video evidence and all of that. Um, and yet it didn't actually last a full month. This one is expected to go longer than a month. It, what is it about this case? What is it about the evidence that is going to require more than a month of testimony to get through it, Bill? Well, part of it is the the length of witnesses for the state. The state has a very long witness list. And as we said before, some of that testimony is going to come through video. And as we saw yesterday, it was about an hour and a half or so of testimony from Margaret Voigt that was played to the jury at the end of the day. And so if we use that as a gauge as to how long people were on the stand in the first trial, and, and some of that testimony, no doubt, was uh, removed, parts of it were removed from the first trial based on what evidence can be entered into the record in this trial, you know, we could use that as a gauge as to how long some of this will take. And then the defense has its opportunity to put forward its own case. And then there's witnesses that are testifying. And some of the issues that we saw, and I wouldn't say they're issues necessarily, but as you said, people's memories fade. And so when a witness on the stand yesterday, a third grade teacher and a teacher of, of one of the Jensen children, uh, and who uh, Julie Jensen volunteered in the classroom, a question was asked by the prosecution of if she could recall what she had said in prior testimony. And she said under oath, I don't think seeing that would help me jog my memory. And 
the state tried to continue to press that issue and the defense objected saying she already said you asked the question and she already said even if you show me or prove to me that I said something I don't know if I could say that that's the case because of how long ago it was and so there was a back and forth of trying to the state would try to impeach or tell that juror that what they said on the stand this time is wrong and so we went through a whole nother series of questions of trying to get back to some of the things that they could then impeach her on and say that she said back in 2008 and enter that into the record so I think we're seeing some of that and we're going to be seeing some of that of people's memories fading and how is the defense or the state going to jog this witness's memory to get what they say is evidence into the record to for the jury. Sarah, what do you remember from 1998? Top of the bat. What, what's something you could think of from 1998? Um, See? It's tough, right? I mean, where were you? Where were you in 1998? Um, I was... I was a sophomore in high school okay. or a junior. All right. I mean, so I was in high school. I think about some of the youngest uh, witnesses maybe that happened. And, you know, and again, like you talked about the, the teacher who can't, you know, recall maybe what she said all those years ago. I think about some, you know, the, the Jensen children who, again, when you're young, you know, you might remember something in the moment, but I mean, 20 years later, I don't, it just seems like a, a task that's, a, a big challenge. Aren't you going to ask me what I remember from 1998, Brian? <laughs> yes, okay, tell you me. You can't just ask Sarah that question and then... Because I'm older. <laughs> Bill, what do you remember of the mobile above your... Uh... <laughs> what do you remember from 1998, Bill? Uh, clearly, it was the second... The, the last third of the second three-peat of the Chicago Bulls championship. Oh, okay, you do remember that. All right, that's... I, I did think you were going to tell me something like I, I remember, uh, you know, my kindergarten teacher or something. I don't know. I don't know how young you. I, I know, I, you know, I have no concept of time after 25 years whatsoever. So 1998 was a good year for Bulls fans. Absolutely. Um, I, I know uh, you've got to, We've got to respect your time, Bill, because you have to get going. And this is the thing. You've got to get back in because there's going to be testimony starting any minute or argue, at least legal arguments. I, what I'm wondering is, ha, have you rented an apartment in Kenosha? I mean, are you, because you're gonna, are you gonna be there every day for this trial? Uh, that's a question for uh, someone that's above okay. my pay grade. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I don't think uh, I would be loath to turn one down, and neither would uh, whoever I'm working with, as as we've been uh, up very early in the morning and, and heading down here. I'm currently sitting outside of the courthouse and in the car uh, getting ready to go in. Uh, so, But we are going to be covering this for the next uh, month or so. I know they're very long days for you, so we really appreciate you taking extra time to get up early and get on the air with us uh, for this, for, for the podcast. So, Bill, thanks a lot. Head back in and get us the latest on the, the Jensen trial. Thank you very much. And it is time for us to go off the record. This is the part of the podcast where we get a little more casual, have a little fun by answering a question for which, at least for which I have not prepared today because we had to send Bill on his way. So it's Sarah and me and she knows the question. So Sarah, I guess you're going to, I don't have time to stall this week. I'm going to have to be ready with something right away. Right, right. Okay, so the question for today is thinking about food in your pantry, in your refrigerator, 
How long do you feel it is safe to go past the expiration date slash best buy date before you consume and or dispose? It depends on the food because this is a constant conversation in our household. I think my wife is a little more leery of going past those dates. Like she sees we're one day past, just chuck it, get rid of it. I, I recognize there are certain th- I mean, and, and there is a difference between an expiration and a best buy date, right? Like, so Fair. if you've yep. got, um, you know, I'll, I'll say something like cottage cheese. It's high in salt content. You get past the best buy date. You're probably fine for a little while. I'm okay with it. I'm fine. I kind of inspect the. It's the, still the curdly and dairy, and like it already what's it is get more right. Curdly? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but fresh vegetables. Well, I guess those don't really have best. But there are sometimes you'll get like say you get prepackaged broccoli florets or something. Sure. If you get much past the best, you don't even really need a date on those because you start to no, know. They start to grow their own trees. Well, they smell. They the the smell. Oh, that, I'll tell you, too. We blah. air fry a lot of broccoli, and I will tell you. Oh my gosh. It smells horrible, but it tastes yes, delicious. Yes. It tastes um, so good. Yeah. So, but but in terms of other things, I mean, I think there are some bread. I'm always, I think one of my things, I guess you get a day past it, I'm ready to let it go because. I go by, by sight and touch. <laughs> one of my great fears with bread is it all looks fine. You make a sandwich and then there was that one spot of mold oh, yes, as you take yes. a bite and you realize oh, you're three bites in and that forever. ruins me. Yes. Ruins yeah, you're me. Right. So with bread, I'm I, a little I'm not, more, yeah. let's get it out the door. My mental health is worth more than the 225 I just spent for that loaf of bread. So. But you know what has screwed me up on that is we, and I guess this is smart, sometimes we'll go to the store and buy a few loaves of bread and then and you freeze, freeze them. them. But then the best buy date means nothing. And I've forgotten about that. We had English muffins the other day. My son came down to make himself like a little homemade egg McMuffin. And um, and he looked at the English muffins and he said, Dad, is there a date on these? And I looked. It's on the little clip. That yeah. Ho- so I look at the clip and <laughs> August it said. August It was. It was August 19. And I was like, ooh, buddy, <laughs> I don't know. August the 19th. And he was about to Eat throw them out. Muffin. He was about to throw them out. And I said, wait, those have been frozen. They're probably okay. And he looked at me with eyes that said, "I'm not buying it." And he threw no. my he threw them out. Well, anyway. and how? But how did they look? Because there's a they difference. They look fine. Like if, they look okay, fine. I, I think if they would have looked fine, I would have I would have probably eaten it. But I have frozen hot dog buns before, and I pulled some out the other day that were living in the depths and the bowels mm, of yeah. our garage freezer. Yeah, it's hard to thaw those. <laughs> yeah, and they kind of get all like moist and mealy. It was weird. So I looked and I was like, "Dude, for the ninety nine cents, I just..." I'll go get another bag of them. But there so. there are a number of things like, you know, and, and you watch that in the store sometimes. If you're paying attention, you grab a lettuce yeah. or a, a some or some cheese and you don't realize that it's about to go bad in three days or or it's about to hit its best buy date in three days. And that's the key. Is it about to go bad? How long after that date do you have? And I feel like that's really where this is hard on the consumer because you've got to sort of guess. Yeah. Well, what does that mean? Right. How long is this good for? Right. And I guess if you don't want to get violently ill, you're better off just erring on the side of caution, right? Or you just use the same phrase my husband uses every time. It's still good. It's If I feel <laughs> I fine like, later, then it, it was isn't. okay. <laughs> yeah, right. I have had times, and I actually yesterday was one of these times. It's funny you bring this up because I was making a salad, and I realized a few of the ingredients looked like they might be, like we had some, we had some chopped up uh, peppers. I had chopped some little tiny peppers. They were getting a little, you know, where they get a little glossy. Like, and you like go, wrinkly is, kind of, yeah. yeah. And it's like, is that... Is that okay? And I dumped him in, and what I thought was, I'll know later. And it turned out I was okay. So, um, but that's not Shwoo. the best way. I'm, I'm guessing if we had like a, a food safety expert on, they would say that's not they, how yeah, you do it. Th- yeah. 
Oh, it's a good thing we're the experts. <laughs> Best purchase, though, my favorite purchase, and my wife and I bought these at the same time, and we just thought, let's just keep two, but it was, it was a legitimate digital meat thermometer. Because we make a lot of food in the air fryer, a lot of, you know, pork tenderloins and chicken wings and who knows what else, and I have found the ability to measure the internal temperature of meat makes me feel so much better because you don't want to overcook things. No, but, but you, you don't want to undercook. Under yes, yeah. so I've found that to be uh, a brilliant piece pink chicken, uh, yeah. of technology in my in my kitchen. Well, if you have a topic you would like us to discuss on Open Record or an issue you think we should investigate for Fox 6 News, please send us an email to fox6investigators at fox.com. Sarah, thanks for being on the podcast as always. No problem. And of course, thank you to all the people who make this podcast possible, including our editor, Dave Machuda. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't done that already. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, or wherever you do your podcast listening. I'm Brian Polson. We'll be back next week. Thank you.